0: But it was the message of the Risen Christ that really kind of gripped me. Um, One of the critical elements of Martin Heidegger was his argument that authentic existence is only found by regular contemplation of your death. And uh, I found this very unsettling in Heidegger. But in hearing the Gospel, it was the fact that Christ has has been raised from the dead. So there is
1: hope. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary.
2: Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. This is Matthew Barrett, your host. One of my favorite historians, and really a theologian in his own right, is Michael Haken. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, studying under Michael uh, for for many years at the Southern Baptist Seminary, where he teaches uh, church history and biblical spirituality. He's also the director there of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. Uh, One of the things I so enjoy about Michael is his ability to take you into the past and and not just understand uh, its significance or its story, but to go behind some of the figures and, and comprehend exactly why Uh, They acted the way they did and uh, how their theology even influenced the decisions they made. Uh, So often when I think of the church fathers or Baptist history or the reformers, uh, I'm brought back to Michael Haken's works, uh, his lectures, uh, some of the messages that he's given um, over the, the whole course of his career that have so influenced evangelicals to regain a better, uh, a better understanding of church history, but also uh, a passion for church history uh, to make better sense of their own evangelical identity. Uh, well, with that said, I've invited Michael on the Credo Podcast to talk not just about church history, but specifically about his own life, his own career, and I think it's going to surprise some of our listeners who may not know him to discover some of his own journey uh, into Christianity and from Christianity into the the halls of of historical theology and church history. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Well, like I said, I I think some of our listeners who maybe have read some of your books or they've listened to some of your messages or lectures, perhaps they've even been your students— I think they will be surprised to discover that uh, you were not always a Christian. And uh, before you were a Christian, you also were uh, heavily involved and influenced by Marxism and, and its ideas. Uh, maybe we should start there and go way back to, I think I'm right in saying uh, the early 1970s and uh, Western Ontario. And perhaps you could just start us off by by saying, well, what was that like, and and what influenced you the most during those years?
0: Yes, um, it would be the very, very, very very late 60s, early 70s. So I'm part of that kind of tail end of the baby boomer uh, generation. And uh, we had moved to Canada uh, from England, where I was born, and my father, who is Kurdish in extraction, had uh taken up a teaching post in electrical engineering at McMaster University and the move uh was traumatic for me um, my father was uh i think uh right in making the move from a material uh, uh vantage point but i found it very traumatic um the early teens is never a good a good time to make that sort of radical a move And despite the commonality of language and the fact that Canada was part of the British uh, Commonwealth, uh, formerly the Empire, British British Empire, it was nonetheless a, a, uh, you know, I had culture shock. uh, And I think that, to some degree, uh, alienated me from my surroundings. And so I was certainly open to the sort of radical message that, um, was abroad in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, where a, a kind of a neo-Marxism, um, uh, both uh, kind of a intellectual neo-Marxism by people like Herbert Marcuse, and then the actual praxis of Marxism by people like Che Guevara uh, was very attractive to a lot of people of my generation. Um, to some degree, we were also part of the the um logical playing out of a liberal ideology which questioned norms and tradition and refused to look at boundaries uh, or erect boundaries basically arguing for um unlimited freedom as long as that freedom didn't uh, up up upstage the status quo and um uh, I think a lot of my generation basically took that to its logical ex- extension, which in the 60s would, and 70s would have been uh, the kind of the ethos for it was, was Marxism. And uh, so by the time I was probably 15, 16, I would have regarded myself as part of that world I didn't have opportunities to join things like the SDS or um those sort of radical organizations but certainly those were where my sympathies were uh people like that people like Huey Newton, Eldridge Cleaver, Black Panthers. Uh so things like you know the the trial of the Chicago uh seven uh if I recall the number correctly uh people like Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin um they're the the Upheaval, it would be 1968, the upheaval of the Chicago Convention, Democratic Convention that year, uh, would have attracted my sympathy, um, opposition to the Vietnam War, kind of defined my outlook on uh, North America, um, and fully expected uh, some sort of revolution to take place that would sweep away um, a society that I would regard it as kind of riddled with corruption.
2: Mm. Now, when, um, when you look back you said you were 15, 16 years old, uh, and, and you're, you're looking back at, at how you were so influenced by that ideology, uh, you, you've mentioned a, a couple of, of aspects of it, but, but was there what were some of the maybe some of the practical implications um, for, for you personally uh, in, in your own spiritual state at that point?
0: well i think I think what it meant was um in terms of uh the kind of spiritual heritage of Western culture which is christianity a judeo christian framework i I really gave it no thought um it was something to be rejected um uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, but Roman Catholicism was to my mind part of a part of the problem, and with it the the larger christian framework and um because of the emphasis on politics in Marxism um, and the solutions to the ills of Western culture being put in political economic terms, I think initially my my focus was political. That if you corrected the political malaise, then uh, you would everything would be fine. In terms of practical, what did that mean? It meant a rebellious attitude. I was expelled from high school twice, um, wearing, you know, symbols of rebellion, um, in being involved in a drug culture, which to me was a sign of political rebellion. Um, I'm thankful that I never got into much the harder uh, hallucinogenic drugs, but a lot of my friends did, and I was part of that whole, you know, a lot of my friends were acid heads. Um, I had one friend who was shooting heroin, um, and for me, drugs were a political statement and a, a way of of um, manifesting a, a kind of the rebellion that I hoped would would, would a larger kind of revolution. Um, it was quite disconcerting when I found that m- most of my friends were taking drugs for pleasure, mm. and I saw it as a political statement, and... Um, that was That was probably one step towards my liberation of that world, where I realized that these things were addictive and uh, uh, pleasure ridden because then I saw it as very little different from the use the abuse of alcohol mm. by my parents' generation so that would be i mean if you're talking about practical effects that those would be some of the practical effects no. um, so my involvement in drug culture was a political act the clothing I wore, made a political statement, uh, etc.
2: Now, you've mentioned uh, early signs of uh, liberation, you called it, uh, and and noticing how some of your friends were viewing drugs more as pleasure than a political statement. Uh, These were early rumblings, uh, I suppose we could say. Were there others? And uh, was was this a gradual turn Uh, away from Marxism, or was there a a tipping point or a turning point?
0: I think it was a gradual turn. Um, uh, When I went to university, I took courses in Marxism and uh, found um, professors unable to answer questions I had. And I think also because I started taking courses in existentialism, continental existentialism, so people like uh, Martin Heidegger... Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, um, really never considered Jean-Paul Sartre that significant, a philosophical figure, which might be a a degree of hubris on my part, youthful hubris. Um, But certainly uh, reading, uh, particularly Martin Heidegger, uh, uh, started to realize that there was more to life than politics and economics. There was a whole spiritual side. Heidegger, I think, was strongly influenced in his early years by the kind of Jesuit upbringing, the that training that he had in his early uh, schooling, and uh, that has a place in his philosophical thought. And so it was Heidegger, definitely, who helped kind of bring me out of Marxism. That's a really weird <laughs> kind of um, uh, statement to make, but it was reading Heidegger, studying with a Heideggerian who had studied with Heidegger, an American um, who had gone over and studied Heidegger during the 60s. And uh, reading Heidegger was helpful. Um, and then also, um, there was also in the ethos of my, or the ambience of my generation, uh, this kind of spiritual impulse, which turned towards the East. Not the, It didn't consider Christianity. So I found myself, like many of my generation, toying with, and it really was toying with, toying with things like uh, Zen Buddhism, Taoism, Hmm. Transcendental Meditation, and began to recognize that human beings have a spiritual dimension, not only a political economic dimension, but a spiritual dimension. And uh, there had to be an answer to that. Uh, There had to be... There had to be... That wasn't simply something of wishful thinking. There was something real there. And uh, I remember the first a uh, term of philosophy I took at the University of Western Ontario in London um sitting down to write a proof for the existence or nonexistence of God and in a flash and this is kind of the the this this would be a suddenness uh, would have the element of suddenness to it I, I realized that the, God existed and it was deeply disconcerting mm. um I don't know how I knew that. Um, I arrived at that re- conclusion independent of re- reasoning it out. I was re- going to reason out on paper whether or not God existed, but I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that moment there was a God. That didn't mean I was a Christian, but it meant I was now a theist, and the Marxist perspective, which can be combined with theism, Um Didn't work in my case, though, and I began to move towards these various forms of Eastern spirituality.
2: So what exactly is your transitioning, okay, towards Eastern spirituality, uh, just on the heels of this realization that God must exist, uh, just a a theistic uh, worldview? What then pushed you from, say, These Eastern religions. I think you mentioned Zen Buddhism. Uh, What what pushed you Mm -hmm. from from these type of Eastern spiritualities to a Christian worldview, uh, a Christian understanding of God, and ultimately even spirituality?
0: Yeah, probably it was. uh, I mean, there may have been there are probably a number of things uh, that you could probably feed into the, the 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 decision to to consider Christianity. Uh, certainly one of them would have been contact with Christians. Um, I had two friends who became Christians, in high, sc- uh, high school friends. Uh, one of them in my first year at University of Western Ontario had become a Christian, and I remember him coming over that previous summer, uh, going to university, sharing about his faith. And then, he, because he was really one of the few friends I had on campus at the University of Western Ontario, I wasn't living in residence. And so I... I I appreciated meeting with him on a regular basis but he would often talk about Christian things which I really now looking back probably fail to understand. But there was that witness and then there was another friend uh who became a Christian um and I remember him sharing the gospel with me. Um so that would be one that certainly be one stream uh, not a not a dominant stream I don't think. And then a second stream of influence would be uh studying certain Christian authors, uh, like, um, like Soren Kierkegaard and Gottfried Leibniz um, in philosophy. Uh, but probably the critical thing was meeting uh, the woman who became my wife. Um, I started working at a pizza parlor in Hamilton, Ontario, mm-hmm. and, uh, in the summer of 1973. And I was would have been hired right after the end of the academic year, which was my um, would have been my second uh, year of studies, seventy one yep, seventy three. And um uh she was hired shortly thereafter, after and she was the cashier and I was the pizza maker and we began chatting and because we were both often scheduled on uh to do Friday and Saturday nights which in the in the the store that we were working meant coming in at five o'clock in the evening to cover the Rush hour around supper time, and then the students turning up around uh, nine to ten, and then when the pubs opened, uh, closed around one in the morning. You'd have another rush of people. We'd be open till two in the morning, hmm. which most restaurants today it's unthinkable. And so we had long hours to talk. We would work uh, Friday night into Saturday, and then Saturday night into Sunday, and um, <clears throat> it wasn't long maybe only a matter of a few weeks, before I asked her to go to church. Uh, I found out she went to church. Uh, I knew there were areas of my life I needed cleaning up. Um, By this point, I I was not doing drugs. I had stopped drinking. I had stopped smoking. I had cut my hair. So I didn't appear the sort of radical that I had once been, but my heart really hadn't changed. Mm -hmm. And so I asked her to go to church with her. And that that's a critical turning point, obviously. And uh, the church she went to, she was raised Scottish Presbyterian. She was born in Scotland. But when her parents came to Hamilton, they couldn't find... The Presbyterian Church of Canada has been in a state of, really, collapse, probably for the best part of uh, 30, 40 years or more. And so they couldn't find a... a an evangelical Presbyterian church near where they lived. There are some in Hamilton, but not near where they lived, and so they ended up going to Stanley Avenue Baptist Church, which was an evangelical Baptist congregation, part of the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in Canada, which is an evangelical uh, denomination that kind of came out of the the fundamentalist-modernist controversies in the 20s. And um, uh, I started going there, and heard the gospel, really heard the gospel for the first time in my life, wow. and uh, would have gone with uh, my the woman who became my wife, Allison, uh, for about six months before my conversion in February of 1974.
2: We've been talking to Michael Haken about his conversion, but let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors.
1: Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Philosophy degree program is designed to equip leaders interested in building up the church. The PhD Biblical Studies program at Midwestern Seminary provides opportunities for advanced research and preparation in theology in an environment passionate about God's primary plan for the advancement of the gospel, the local church. Choose from multiple emphases and let your advanced degree open up new opportunities for ministry in our rapidly changing world. With our modular program of study, you can remain in your current ministry setting. but We've also recently introduced the residency, an experiential component to the PhD track where local doctoral students receive one-on-one coaching and mentoring and a community context in which to bolster their studies. Get your PhD today for the church.
2: We're back from our break and ready to return to a fascinating conversation with Michael Haken about how he left Marxism and became a Christian. So as you hear the gospel, uh, and there is a, a quite a change from Everything you just described in terms of prior to Christ, as you hear the gospel, as you're confronted with Christ, uh, how is it that uh, you're encountering this church experience, which I imagine was foreign to you at the time um, and quite new, uh, how is it that you then started to seriously uh, follow Christ?
0: Well, I think um, I think yeah, a number of things. Um, when I first started going to, to, to this Baptist congregation, I think a number of things I found unsettling. Uh, culturally, uh, there's culturally it's unsettling, and I don't think uh, Baptists and other evangelicals often realize how unsettling uh, their worship can be to people who have no kind of background. Uh, in this whole area. I I had come from a liturgical, very heavily liturgical background, Latin Mass. Uh, I still remember the Latin Mass in England. Um, that was only beginning to be phased out because of Vatican II in the 60s. I hadn't been to church for a long time, and um, there are elements of Baptist life, uh, culture, uh, worship culture, that I found weird Um I felt some of it was Hollywoodish. I mean, certainly, we don't do this much anymore, uh, kind of people singing solos. I always found that weird. Mm-hmm. Um, the altar call was a very unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the message of the risen Christ that really kind of gripped mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the critical elements of Martin Heidegger was his argument that authentic existence is only found by regular contemplation of your death. And, uh, I found this very unsettling in Heidegger, but in hearing the gospel, it was the fact that Christ has been, has been raised from the dead. So there is hope Hmm. and he's alive. And, um, it wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't so much the concept of sin and the cross, although I think that was there uh, in the sense of not that, I'm not saying that that wasn't preached, but that was not what really kind of drew me initially. It was the the resurrection life of Christ, his being alive, his having triumphed over death. Uh, that was what drew me. Um, and, um in the spring, February of '74, um, I had a breaking point in that regard, and found myself committing my life to Christ um, and uh, having a sense of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, nothing kind of Pentecostalish, but uh, it was very. There was a very deep sense of. God, having come into my life, so the whole idea of you know accepting Christ into your heart uh there was a uh, an experiential reality to that, and at the same time as all this, just a sense of calling to to be involved in training for ministry mm. um which at the time I had no idea what that meant um because of the kind of um Baptist context in which I was converted, I thought in terms of two things. One is missionary or in terms of uh, being a pastor. Within a year, um, I was at Wycliffe College Evangelical School, Anglican School. Um, I think my pastor wisely, uh, if I'd gone to a Baptist school, I don't think I would have survived. There was a Baptist school I eventually ended up teaching at, Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto. I I was still wrestling with being a Baptist. Uh, I didn't like being a Baptist. Uh, They didn't have any sense of history. I'd always loved history and had a deep sense of um, the heritage that we have received from our culture um, and uh, interest in that heritage and love for that heritage. And uh, Baptists seemed to have no idea who they were, where they came from. Uh, They were Bible people which is per- very, very important. It's bottom line. But they had no sense of their history, no interest in their history. Um, and uh, I think my pastor recognized this, uh, Bruce Woods, and he recommended that I go to uh, Wycliffe College, which is a, a evangelical Anglican school, part of the Federated Colleges of the University of Toronto. I was studying at the, finishing my BA by this point at the University of Toronto. I'd done my first year at Western Ontario and then, Transfer to my second year, and I think that was a very, very wise decision on his recommendation on his part. And um, because Anglicanism, evangelical Anglicanism, with this kind of tradition that goes back to people like Packer, Stott, uh Simeon, J. C. Ryle, um, this is the sort of tradition that we drew upon at, in the life of the school. Uh, they have, you know, they they have a, a, a commitment to history and the importance of uh, training the mind for God. And so it was an ideal context to find myself um, with a, a person with a strong intellectual bent. And um, within a year, I, I knew that my calling was not pastoral ministry, was not um, missionary work, but would be involved in the life of the academy. And um uh, went on from getting my master's at Wickcliffe to doing my PhD there.
2: Now one, one thing that uh, is so curious to me is on the one hand you are more or less saved in the context of, of a, a Baptist church through hearing about the resurrected Christ, which makes so se- makes so much sense given um, how you were you know previously, how you were brought out of a Marxist view uh, thanks to someone like Heidegger, Uh, and yet, uh, naturally, you're you're finding that uh, some of the Baptist culture is odd and and strange and and foreign, Uh, and uh, perhaps at at times feeling a bit inconsistent. Uh, That being the case— how is it that you go from uh, moving away from Baptist life to eventually becoming a Baptist historian?
0: Well, I didn't. um, uh, On weekends, I was still worshiping in uh, the Baptist uh, congregation. Uh, I'd been baptized there in April of 74, and um, as is part of that denomination uh, to be baptized in a local church was to become a member. I mean, the idea of being baptized, not joining a local church, is foreign to the kind of tradition of those churches. So I was still I was a member of those churches. I had critique uh, of the way they did church, so to speak. Um, but um, <clears throat> um, was uh, going to school at Wycliffe during the week was. To be honest, attracted to Anglicanism, uh, what I began to realize, though, what life in the parish was quite different from life in the, in the seminary. Um, I don't think this is necessarily true of every seminary, but we were a kind of a hothouse of evangelicalism. Uh, there were two Anglican seminaries on the campus of the University of Toronto, Trinity College, which has a much broader curriculum than Wycliffe. Wycliffe is just theology. Uh, Trinity College has a liberal arts curriculum as well. They were high church Anglican and um, uh, fairly liberal theologically and it became evident to me that Trinity was probably more typical of Europe of Anglican churches within the Anglican Church of Canada. Um, I did have friends who came out of a um, a non-liturgical evangelical background who ended up becoming Anglicans. A good number of them have left uh, over the the gay issue and I've joined what's called Anic, uh Anglican Network in Canada, or its similar kind of version in the United States. But having said that, yeah, it was attractive. Um but two things stood in my way. One is um the both of them dealing with ecclesiology. Uh one of them was the the whole episcopacy. Uh the the Wycliffe College in its statement of faith has one of its Statements is that uh, is that episcopacy is an early form, uh, a primitive form, I think, of unity, of maintaining the unity of the of the church. And it's interesting; it doesn't say New Testament because um, the people who drew that up would have been cognizant that uh, there were are significant disagreements about the ecclesial framework of the New Testament. Um, in terms of whether or not you can prove episcopacy there. But certainly episcopacy emerges as an option in the 2nd century of Ignatius of Antioch. Um, I had problems with episcopacy. Um, maybe you can put it down to my radical roots, <laughs> and uh, which emphasized the populism. But um, congregationalism I found uh, attractive, and I think biblical. And so that was one thing that stood in the way. And along with episcopacy, also, it wasn't simply—and this is, I think, very important in studying church history— it wasn't simply the theology, it was also the ethos that went along with it. And the ethos was one of clericalism, Mm. which I hate with a passion. Um, Just the whole idea of the clergy and those who are ordained as ministers being somehow— one step closer to god or some sort of higher order and this kind of um second to kind of a two-tier christianity and um whether or not the the bishops that i met in uh, my studies at wittfield college um meant to convey and that it certainly often it's it no, it sometimes came across that way i wouldn't say often it sometimes came across that way um, and especially when I was instructed, you know, when you meet a bishop, you would say your grace or whatever. And uh, the, the, there is a just, a, just a, I found that very very difficult. So not only the theology but the ethos mm-hmm. of episcopacy. And the other thing, obviously, uh, given my my own conversion experience, um, uh, baptism, the pedo baptism was also a, a major problem for me embracing Anglicanism. And so while I deeply appreciated and am thrilled that I was given that opportunity to have that sort of, um, uh, training in an environment where we use the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, which is one of the spiritual gems of Western Christianity, um, and is a solidly evangelical book, um, I didn't find that I could embrace, uh, Anglicanism. And so by the end of my you know, my eight years of study at Wycliffe, I would have started studying in seventy four, and graduated in eighty two. I was I was confirmed as a as a nonconformist or dissenter, to use, Anglo, uh, to use English terms, or I, I was confirmed as a Baptist.
2: Now, and this is all so fascinating. Uh, there's so much we could explore here uh, in, in terms of uh, this transition into. Uh, being a convictional Baptist and uh, steering away from uh, not just the theology, but you said also the ethos of clericalism, and and how that just pervades Anglicanism. Um, you're not just uh, you're not just directed towards Baptist life, Baptist history, Baptist theology, but uh, a- anyone who knows you knows uh, your ongoing work with uh, on on someone like Andrew Fuller. Uh, you're, you're editing the, um, the, the works of Andrew Fuller, uh, 17 volumes. Um, to our listeners, you may want to check this out. Um, the first three volumes are, are already available. But Michael, maybe you could um, just connect the dots here. Uh, what was it that uh, you know, you're studying Baptist history more and more uh, as your career progresses? What is it that drove you at some point to someone like Andrew Fuller?
0: Yes. the uh, My earliest uh, uh, tendency, uh, my earliest uh, kind of inclinations regarding academic work in the tradition of Western Christianity or the history of Western Christianity would have been the early fathers and um, really the 4th century. Um, um, people like Basil of Caesarea, Athanasius, whom I did my doctoral work on, Augustine and so on. And um, the university of Toronto in the seventies and eighties was a haven for anybody interested in doctoral studies. Um, there were a number of people there, John Rist, Paul Fedwick, uh, Joanne McWilliam-Dewart, um, all of whom were experts in the fathers. There was probably easily a half a dozen, uh, Eugene Fairweather. Uh, it was just a tremendous context. And, uh, McMaster University, which is a Baptist institution, had a um, adjunct affiliation with the University of Toronto, Toronto School of Theology, where these other colleges were. But there really was very little opportunity to study Baptist thought, and so I wasn't really exposed to Baptist thought. Um, in 1982, when I was hired to teach at Central Baptist Seminary, uh, they offered a course in Baptist history, and so I was kind of thrown into the deep end, because I hadn't really studied Baptist history. Um, but hopefully, and I, I think uh, the training I had gotten as a historian uh, proved its mettle by the fact that, uh, and as we should be able to do today, uh, we train people in areas of historical research, and uh, it doesn't really matter what area is open to them, they should have the, they should have the resources in terms of the craft, the tools, the wherewithal to know how to begin uh, investigating and researching, and then preparing lectures and teaching in an area that they had, may have, the, the content of which they may not have formally studied. So I started uh, um, having to research this area. The area, the the thing that there were probably two or three things that drew me to Fuller. One, first of all, there was the larger realization that sometimes I'd be invited to churches to give a history seminar. And uh, the only area of history I felt competent to to lecture in were the Fathers, but it became very evident to me that most evangelical churches, and Baptist churches in particular, uh, really had problems with the Fathers. I think this is wrong, but be that as it may, uh, at the time I realized I needed to develop a second area of research, post-Reformation, Protestant. And uh, the first area that presented itself in my mind was Puritanism. And as I began to read the Puritans, I began to become aware of the emergence of the Baptists out of the Puritan movement in the 1600s. and So that introduced me to early Baptist life uh, in the 17th century, both the general Baptists, but more particularly the particular Baptists, uh, who are Calvinistic. And then the second uh, thing that drew me uh, to Fuller was, and this this is directly drew me to Fuller, was I was very interested in pneumatology um, uh, for two reasons. One, I had done my doctoral work on patristic pneumatology, the defense of the deity of the spirit, in the 4th century by Basil of Caesarea and Athanasius of Alexandria, and their use of uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, their Pauline material, to defend the deity of the spirit, the way they exegeted and interpreted those texts. And then um, again, because of the, we should never ignore the existential component. Uh, because of my own kind of um, experience, I was I'd been deeply involved with the charismatic movement uh, during the '70s, which had influenced my thinking. Uh, I I wouldn't have described myself as a charismatic by the eight, by the mid '80s. But certainly, it had it had an impact on me, and so I was interested in the spirit. And I have a strange habit: if I have a sometimes an hour to kill, uh, I might, and I'm near a library, and especially a school library, I might go along stacks of the library shelving that I've not looked at uh, in maybe a while. And so I was doing this actually at Central Baptist Seminary, which was on then on. Jonesville Crescent in uh, East Toronto and near Victoria Park Avenue. And the third floor is the library, and I can still remember coming to the section on Baptist history and seeing these three volumes. They were 19th-century 19th century volumes, uh, and they were the works of Andrew Fuller. I'd never heard of Andrew Fuller. I started to, to research Baptist history, but it was in the early stages. And it was mostly the Puritan era, the 17th century. And I pulled them off. I pulled off the third volume, and the third volume, it was the 1845 um, Philadelphia edition, which was published by the American um, Sunday School Society, if I recall correctly. And um, they American Baptist Sunday School Society, and they the third volume has his circular letters in it. And I happened to open the, just opened it at random, and the first letter that I saw was his 1810, circular letter on the importance of the Spirit for doing mission, and I was hooked. I sat down to read it, realized that here was a theologian of considerable depth, Hmm. um, who who kind of breathed the same air as the Fathers. Um, In his case, it was the Puritan heritage that had given the Baptists of that period a deep interest in pneumatology. Uh, This would be lost in the 20th century. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, the Baptists in the 18th and 19th centuries had a fascination with pneumatology from their Puritan heritage. And as I say, I was hooked. I began to read Fuller, began to realize that he was a a completely overlooked theologian, and uh, wrote a collection of writings extracted from Fuller and a variety of his friends in the late 80s, uh, sent it to the Banner of Truth to try to get it published. Uh, Ian Murray responded by saying, um, um, I really needed to do more background study, more biographical study, which pushed me into the, the first book I published, which was One Heart and One Soul. It took about five years to prepare. It was the life and times of uh, Andrew Fuller's close friend, John Sutcliffe, but it also involved Fuller, Carey, John Ryland, Samuel Pierce. Um... And uh, in some ways, what I did with that book was a second doctorate, a uh, second doctoral thesis, and because it, it just it it plunged me into the depths of 18th century English particular Baptist life, which lay at the foundation of the modern missionary movement, uh, because of Carey going to India and so on, and all of their concern for revival, the outpouring of the Spirit and the impact of that revival in mission, and then also in the great titanic struggle against the slave trade, which they were also involved in. Mm. Mm. And so it's a very, very exciting period. And uh, what began as a kind of a sidelight to have topics to talk about when I went to Baptist churches or evangelical churches uh, eventually became the dominant area of my research. So that really today... The Andrew Fuller Works project is kind of the is just a, is representative of the dominant sphere of my academic work, but also existential. I mean, the Fuller has been a tremendous mentor mm. to me. Yeah, um, I've still kept up my work in the fathers, yeah. um, but it's I'm not I'm not it's it, it's more of a teaching and guidance of students in PhD work. I'm not writing. The sort of academic work uh, that you, I, I don't know how somebody does two or three areas like that. Uh, Yaroslav Pelikan did. Um, uh, you just have to keep abreast of an enormous amount of material. Right. Um, I still do, you know, the occasional article on the fathers that's a peer reviewed article, but generally speaking, uh, the main area of research is, is the 18th century. Mm.
2: We've been talking to Michael Haken, who teaches church history and biblical spirituality at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Many of our listeners, you may know uh, him from uh, so many of his books. Uh, We've been talking about the fathers. He's written a book called Rediscovering the Church Fathers. He's also written uh, The Baptist Story and other books like uh, Eight Women of Faith uh, with Crossway. So many others Uh, we've been discussing here at the end. His is a major focus on Andrew Fuller and, and what an influence and me- a mentor even Fuller has been for Michael. But uh, look, take a look at uh, the works of Andrew Fuller. These are works that uh, not only have great significance for Baptist history, but uh, I think you'll find uh, they have great significance for theology as well. Uh, Michael, what a pleasure it's been uh, to talk about your journey out of Marxism uh, to the resurrected Christ, Jesus our Lord.
0: Thank you. It's been a a delight. Real pleasure. Thank you.
1: Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.